this image in here from SquarePeg. Founded in 2012, SquarePeg is a venture capital firm in Sydney, Melbourne, Tel Aviv and Singapore that is on a mission to empower exceptional founders. We are an early stage technology investor across the fintech, enterprise, healthcare, consumer and emerging spaces. We have over $1.6 billion in assets under management across multiple funds and have invested in category-defining businesses, including Fiverr, Canva, StashAway, Awolix, Credivo, Tomorrow, and Vend, which is what we're here to talk about today. We joined Vaughan and the Venn team in 2013 when the Auckland-founded startup was only a few years old. It wasn't just our attraction to the green machine and Vaughan's moustache, impressive though that was, but we were excited about the team's massive vision to build a world-leading platform for stores around the world, helping all businesses, quote, move to the cloud. Vend helps retailers to accept payments, sell in-store and online, manage their inventory, reward customer loyalty, and report on their business in real time. It was founded in late 2010 and is used by over 20,000 customer locations across 140 countries. Over the years, we were proud to support the team time and again. My colleague and SquarePeg co-founder, Barry Brott, served on the board as chairman for many years, and we invested in Vend a further four times, becoming Vend's largest shareholder and venture investor. Fast forward to today, the Venn team has built a huge, loyal, and global customer base, more than 20xing its revenue since our first investment. Now, the big news for Vend is that it was recently acquired by Lightspeed, an $8 billion Canadian company that will supercharge Vend's ambition to help every retailer take advantage of the move to the cloud. The transition comes after a 12-year journey from the founding team at Vend, and the $450 million acquisition reminded the world that brilliant technology companies are built in New Zealand. It's a tremendous legacy that is still being built, and you only needed to read some of the reactions online to the news to know that this team has built tremendous goodwill around their product, company, and culture. And while today's interview is mostly with Anna, Venn's CEO, I wanted to start with Venn's founder, Vaughn, who stepped away from the CEO role in 2016, and without whom, none of this would have been possible. In our conversation, Vaughan is sitting outside in the countryside in New Zealand, talking about his next project, overlooking the ocean and a beautiful forest. This is a lodge that we bought probably three years ago now. It's, uh, it was a school camp that was set up maybe 50 years ago. Um, and it stopped being a school camp probably about 20 years ago. So we are rehabilitating it and turning it into a science and technology camp where kids can come and learn about their natural environment and, and, and also about how technology impacts that. So yeah, it's, a, it's my next startup project, I guess you could say, and it's a big challenge, but when you're doing it in a place like this, you know, it just feels easy. <laughs> Waking up to this every day makes it all worthwhile. Vaughan's next adventure seems as important to him as the last, and just as it seemed right for Vaughan to spend his time now figuring out how to tempt kids into STEM, a very worthwhile project, 12 years ago it was another passion that led him to build Vend. Vend is an unequivocal success story, but what makes Vend special isn't immediately obvious. It's hard to pin down the intangible aspects of a company culture and where they started, and so that's where we really begin today talking through luck, timing and culture. We were pioneering a whole new way of doing retail and we really leveraged off the wave that was already starting to build around SaaS and cloud computing. And, you know, we had our unique take on it. But if it wasn't for timing, you know, if we were if we were five years earlier or five years later, we would have completely have missed that whole wave. And so I don't know whether it was just dumb luck, you know, had an idea and then push really hard on it. That's the other thing, because you know, I talk to a lot of founders and you know, everybody wants to know the secret. And it's like, there is no secret. I mean, some things are in your control, some things aren't. Like the timing bit is a little bit in your control, you know, you know, as to whether you go early or, or miss the boat. But the thing that's totally in your control is that 
is uh, the pace at which we run at. And the early years at Vend, we were we were moving at a, a breakneck pace. You know, we were literally making stuff up as we were going. But we had this amazing culture, which is you know the other most important part about building a significant thing is you need to have people who believe in the the vision that you believe in and and believe in it as much and are as passionate about it as as you are because you won't know you won't know what's around the corner and there's always another level there's always another pothole you know speed hump opportunity it's impossible to plan these things but if you've got great people who are ready to go and are running at pace and you've got the timing right and you're doing amazing things and everything else just becomes infinitely easier. Vaughan says his approach to building a great company culture is being authentic as a leader and making sure you're having some fun too. It's not all about cake and, and parties, you know, making sure that you're working hard at the same time, but celebrating the wins when you, when you see them. And it's something that we haven't been that great at either, even though it's very easy to focus on the next problem, you sort of reach a milestone and then sort of focusing on the next horizon. And that's important, being absolutely future focused, but it's also important for the team just to pause every now and then and just and look back on where you've come from and celebrating those things. So yeah, we used to do things like blow up old cash registers who were the mortal enemy of what we were doing on our mission and come up with ingenious ways of killing cash registers, whether it's like throwing them out of planes or off buildings or running them over in, in trucks and shooting them with machine guns and flamethrowers and you name it. We came up with all sorts of crazy ideas and the team just loved it because we were being a little bit irreverent you know we're having a bit of fun but it was still on brand for what what our mission was and those tracks that we laid in the early days around culture you know it's culture is so hard to astroturf into a startup or into a business later like it it needs to start with the founders and it needs to be authentic It, it just needs to be the you know being reflective of your values as a human because that's something that's always been important to us at Vend is like we want people to be themselves and we want them to connect to our values like if they if they have an allergic reaction to one of our core values then you know it's not going to work out and so you know we want to make sure we wanted to make sure that people could see our values loud and clear from the outside before they even joined the company and it worked as a great recruitment strategy as well because people would hear about you know, the, the quirky culture at Vend and the parties that we would have. And, you know, it'd be interesting to them. Vend became a highly desired place to work. And with such a developed culture and a breakthrough product, competitors started to appear in the industry. But Vaughan never saw them as a threat. In fact, quite the opposite, a quite a Kiwi approach, if I don't say so myself. And perhaps that's what ultimately led to such a successful sale of the company. We were really the pioneers, and with the recent acquisition, we've joined forces with one of our competitors who we've known from day one. That's the cool thing about the industry is that it's been a relatively small, tight-knit industry. There's been people who have come and people have, who have gone, but we've always had this immense respect for the others in the ecosystem. And I guess it's that, that's another piece, which is like always acting with a mutual respect to, to everybody else. Like, sure you have competitors but I like to think we've always built a friendship with competitors in the industry you know part of it's also because you know if you can have a beer beer together then you can you can probably learn a bit more that you probably wouldn't learn otherwise but you never know what's around the corner and for us you know one of our biggest competitors liked what we were doing so much that they just had to had to buy the company so again something that you just can't plan but it all comes down to being being amazing people, doing awesome stuff, and then then everything else just seems to fall into place. With this mutual respect for competitors and the knowledge that company culture is king, Vaughan believes that one of the biggest lessons he learned as a founder is to forget ego and build the next level of leaders up to be the best that they can be. You don't need to be the boss of the world to change it, is something that I tell, I tell a lot of people. Um, great leadership is about empowering other people to be leaders themselves. And also it makes your life a hell of a lot easier if you're not having to like be <laughs> run everything all the time. But, you know, servant leadership is something I try, and I don't know if I'm very good at, which is like, you know, quietly supporting other people to be the leaders and to be the future leaders. Because then you're building the next layer of future leaders within your organisation. And also, you know, making people feel like there's always a pathway. Like, if you want to be CEO of Vend, then absolutely, you know, there's there's a pathway to that. 
I am not the blocker. In fact, you know, I was quite happy to make room for the next wave of leaders in the organization. But there's, yeah, so there's different ways to lead and for you to find the place that you're most comfortable and you're kind of your happy spot of leadership and, and then focus on that. Don't try and be a leader that you're not because it will just end a disaster. Vaughan's happy spot was in product, making sure that the end product truly served the customer's needs. And while all of this ego is the enemy chat is quite in vogue these days, for Vaughan, this is his authentic approach to life. And it created immense opportunities for brilliant, capable people to step into leadership roles that could transform the company for the better. And that's precisely what happened at Vend. First with Alex Falar, then CEO from 2016. And finally with Anna White, who took over in 2020. And as we always do, we're going right back to the beginning. And for Anna, this means starting in Brazil. My parents, who are not Brazilian, were living there for 10 years, working in, and living there. And when I was four, we moved to New York for a year, where my parents uh, were working on Wall Street. And then they decided that they wanted to leave there and, I guess, bring my sister and me somewhere where... They thought it would be a great place for us to grow up, and so they chose uh, New Zealand. My mum is actually a Kiwi, but not from Auckland, so it was kind of a new city for everyone. And one of the reasons that they moved, and I think this has been quite influential in my life, was about what kind of life holistically do you want to have, and how do you put those pieces together? So quite purposeful about how you think about where you are, the work you do, and the people you spend your time with. And the other thing it meant growing up was there was just the four of us. So although I had sort of cousins in the UK and grandparents in the South Island and cousins there, we actually didn't see them very often. And so it was kind of the four of us were a very tight sort of unit. Um, And the things that were often talked about sort of around our dinner table, which is something that was a very big deal for us, always eating together, was stories of kind of travel and adventure, because my parents had had quite, had done quite extraordinary travel as well as sort of what they did in their um, careers, and also the importance of family and friends and being a good member of the unit that you're part of. And so I guess those two things were always really clear in my mind, this idea of exploring the world and travel and adventure and being really clear about who you are and what you mean to to the people around you. Anna was a bright student and by her own admission, she had wonderful teachers, a great school experience and fabulous grades, granting her the scope to do pretty much anything she fancied at university. And I did international business because that was the one that had the most problem solving in it. And I really loved it. And I didn't know at the time that it was sort of early strategy work. I just knew that I liked it because it was sort of thinking about things and problem solving and trying to put things together. And I did an accounting degree because I was like, oh, well, that like I had a great accounting teacher at high school and this seems like something everybody uh, understands. So did a commerce degree, did a honors degree, and then wanted to figure out what I should do. And I, I actually... I didn't really know what to do and I was sort of navigating on my own what you do after uh, university and so I applied for an accounting role though it's pretty clear kind of graduate program graduate position in those big four firms and thought that that would be fine it was quite predictable and that seemed like a good a good thing to do after university but actually through some work I was doing over the university holidays met some people who I talked to about the type of work I wanted to do and the subjects I enjoyed. And they said, well, we need someone like that in our strategy team. And I thought, well, I've already accepted this accounting role. What should I do? It doesn't feel, doesn't feel like I should go and have this conversation. And I remember my dad actually encouraging me and saying it's totally fine to go and talk to people about options as long as you're transparent with everybody about about what you're doing and so I went and had a chat and I loved it I was so inspired by the people that I uh, got to speak to and what they wanted to do and I was like wow this is this is what I want to do and luckily they were enthusiastic and asked me if I would come back and do some interviews which I did and it was a much less well-defined role it was less predictable in terms of you know when you're just graduated like what that career path would look like 
but I had this feeling, which is actually that I should go and work with the people that I found most inspiring and who I thought I could learn the most from. And from there, you know, I guess it goes on, but that's, that's how I ended up in my, in my first job, which I think is a little bit me, right? Which is there was something slightly unknown, but amazing people and an opportunity to do something different. And without really meaning to, Anna had landed her first job at Spark, then called Telecom, New Zealand's largest telecom and digital services company. And I keep looking at the decisions I make and that seems to be a theme. So at Telecom, which is now called Spark, my manager there, looking back now, I'm like, he was, he was really brilliant. He was a huge sponsor of talent. He was a real sponsor of a woman and talented woman um, and continues to be an important mentor and advisor in my life. But I think what I learned there was this idea of great teams doing great work and that, and that real, the, the power, I think, and the energy and excitement of being part of just a really kick-ass team working tightly together and, and achieving really cool things together. Like all Kiwis, it was time to do my OE. Uh, and I ended up at Microsoft because of some work I'd done in my time at Telecom and worked there with uh, a woman who was uh, a manager for me on a project at Telecom, then was my manager initially at Microsoft and continues to be one of the most trusted advisors I have in my life in terms of uh, my career and also a good friend of mine. And so I went to the UK, I worked with her, learned a ton, and that was when the GFC happened. And so there was a kind of moment there where my contract with Microsoft was up for renewal. They had a global hiring freeze. Things were getting quite quite tough in London in terms of people just weren't hiring. So Anna quit her job in New Zealand and headed to London where she took up a contract role at Microsoft, a hookup she'd gotten via a previous colleague at Telecom. When her contract was up for renewal a year later, the global financial crisis had well and truly hit and Microsoft had implemented a global hiring freeze. But being Anna, she took it on the chin, she packed her bags and she headed traveling. Exploring Japan, China, Mongolia and India. Once she returned to the UK and the companies were in a position to hire again, she found herself back working for Microsoft. That was great fun. Learned a lot there as well. This kind of idea of being in a region, not being in corporate strategy anymore, but being in business unit strategy, trying to think about how to make things move on a global scale and frankly seeing what a huge tech company looks like and how it how it works and and the types of people that are there and I guess how the machine works and what it what it can create. I think the highlight is you realize that if you can pour like all of the talent and resources and vision and you know the things that only Microsoft can do, like how you can change the world. You know, it was sort of like I'm in a company with people who invented things that everybody uses every day. Like there's there's that amazing sort of creative genius and then a machine that can just really push it forward. I think the flip side of that, which I don't think is specific to Microsoft, right? It's just big companies, is they are like big ships. And so to change the course or to 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 steer them in a different direction takes a huge amount of of effort and energy. And I think the thing that I I took from my time at Microsoft versus my time at Telecom Spark is the whenever you sit in a corporate strategy team, it seems really, you know, you do the work and you're like, this is obviously what we should do. And you can't understand why business units find it really hard to execute it. And when you're in a business unit and you get corporate strategy, you're like, wow, they're so disconnected from the realities of whatever it is, my market or my product. And I think what I learned there was that that intersection of being able to think at an enterprise level, but execute in a way that moves the whatever it is, the customer outcome, the, the market outcome forward. Like that's where the magic happens because a brilliant corporate strategy that doesn't get executed is not worth very much. But then just kind of random execution that doesn't tie up to a bigger picture 
also runs out of steam. And I think that was kind of quite quite a learning for me at Microsoft is where those two intersect is where really amazing things happen. And it also made me appreciate, question, appreciate, I don't know, form a view on what it's like to be part of a an organization where the headquarters is not where you are, right? And I'd, I'd come from a world where I was in HQ. And so it was really a, a good learning as well to go, okay, when you're not right in HQ, how do you think about connecting with the right people, having really clear communication, having a shared sense of what you're trying to do, things that you sort of take for granted when you're all in the same office, but except now you're not only in, not in the same office, you're in different regions and there's different kind of KPIs and, and things that, you know, can get confusing. So I think, I didn't think at the time, if I'm ever building a company, what, what would I do or not do? But I think I understood that this bringing together of the enterprise strategy and the local strategy and driving that forward is where, where the value gets created. Getting to see both sides of the business building equation at the top level, the strategy and the global perspective, while also getting to work in the nitty gritty every day, taught Anna how easy it is for parts of the company to experience communication breakdowns and ultimately start pulling in two very different directions. With experience in London tucked under her belt, she felt it was time to return home to New Zealand. But unlike most normal people who would hop on a plane to make the trek, Anna and her partner decided to cycle it. So we decided to make the move back to New Zealand. I wasn't exactly sure what it would mean for me from a career perspective, but I guess that theme of of your whole life, it, it made sense. And we decided to take that opportunity to have another adventure. And so we spent a bit of time thinking about what that adventure might look like and somehow landed on we were going to cycle home and take a year cycling. We both knew how to ride bikes, but we'd never been cyclists. But we got inspired by a few blogs we'd read and actually we got in touch with one couple who'd cycled from England to New Zealand and invited them over to our house uh, and had dinner with them. And we were like, are we crazy? Can we do this? I got lots of great advice and inspiration from them. They were fantastic. And so we were like, OK, we're, we're going to do this. And so we spent a few months preparing for that, packed up our flat, put our stuff in boxes and shipped it home and then got on our bikes and started cycling. And we wanted to spend a year cycling and get back to New Zealand and our first I guess our first goal was we're going to cycle from London to Istanbul and if we can make it to Istanbul then we can decide from there uh, what we'll do and so that's what we did jumped on our bikes and cycled across Europe through the Middle East through Southeast Asia and into New Zealand it was it was an incredible incredible year and yeah not something that I had anticipated how how difficult it would be and also how rewarding it would be. It was a really incredible, really incredible year. And one of the things with cycle touring is you move so slowly because you can only cover, you know, let's say 100, 150 kilometers a day. And so you don't, I can't look back and tell you like when bread turned into rice or when languages changed or when the actual borders really mattered. You you move so much more slowly and, and gradually that by the time you get to, I don't know, the time you're in Laos, you sort of can't, you can't really fathom how different it is to London because it all happened so, so slowly along the way. But it was a real, it really gave me a lot of faith in humanity again. You know, we had, a, we had a couple of little, little incidents along the way, but for a whole year on, on the road, you just see how overwhelming kind and generous people are and how basically everybody wants the same thing right which is a great life for their kids and you know safety and, and security and, and friends and family so it was it was a really wonderful wonderful time and I highly recommend it to anyone who's thinking about it you just have to pedal one kilometer at a time. <laughs> Getting back to Auckland was exciting because we'd cycled home and so it wasn't sort of like we just jumped on a plane and arrived you know there was kind of this journey and so Finally getting there was like a quite an amazing feeling. I was a bit nervous about what kind of work would I be able to do when I got to New Zealand. And I think that's actually a narrative that I see a lot of my friends or colleagues have. And certainly my experience has been 
I got to do some of the best work of my life when I got back to New Zealand. So uh, I think you've got to sort of be careful of the narrative versus versus the reality. When Anna and her partner returned to Auckland a year later, she was approached by McKinsey and Company. She had immense respect for the institution, previously hoping to work with them at the very start of her career. And having collaborated with them on several projects during her time at Spark, she really liked the team. She was invited to work on their RTS project. And while consultants typically get parachuted in, work on a project for a defined, often too short amount of time, deliver a strategy and then get airlifted out again, the RTS model was new and it required working with clients to set the strategy and then execute upon it. A change that made Anna sceptical at first and then convinced her that this was the way to affect real change for clients. It was fantastic. I spent my time between... Auckland and uh, Melbourne, a little bit of travel in in Asia. And it was the, I mean, really great people. And the, I guess the companies that I worked with, we were really trying to work super closely together. You know, you're there every day. And to really change both the engagement and operating model for their people, as well as the the financial results of the of the company. And I learned so much in terms of how you can really rapidly transform performance and people's engagement. So, so many, so many inspirational colleagues, the the rigor around doing the work and then how you translate it into something that's meaningful for people, all of the incredible learning and development and investment in talent that McKinsey makes, which I which I really value. And it's been a theme for me going forward, thinking about the teams that I lead. But also, I was deeply inspired by the clients that we worked with. And one of my biggest, biggest takeouts was that nearly all of the answers, the staff in those companies already had but there wasn't a way for them to get that answer to the right people to get it executed or moved forward either there was a gap in terms of communication flow or communication method or a feeling that it it, i don't know there was some there was some blocker but i i remember thinking this is the thing that i got the most energy from was really being part of unleashing the potential of the teams and people in those organizations and just being part of the team that sometimes in the background, sometimes right in front, was putting the, the scaffolding in place that enabled those businesses to do what they were really capable of. So McKinsey was, for me, a really, a really um, challenging time professionally right you you work super hard and you learn a lot and you, there's a lot of expectations but it was also extremely rewarding to be part of uh, a team that was able to really make an impact for those for those And while the work was rewarding, Anna was getting itchy feet. She felt it was time to head back into the world of getting your hands dirty. And I wanted to sort of be back in the back in the execution side where the the decisions sit with you and the accountability for whether those decisions were good or bad sit with you. And so I decided that I wanted to just have some time to go back into New Zealand, the New Zealand kind of ecosystem and be part of a part of a team in a business. And so that's that's what I did. And when I left McKinsey, I didn't know where I would go. I just knew that the next step was for me to to be back in industry. And I thought about, should I do something on my own? Should I join one of the big organizations in New Zealand? Or should I do something loosely defined as different? And I kind of got to different quite quickly through some really helpful conversations. And so I had this idea of there's this second, I want to say second tier of businesses in New Zealand that are small. What I mean by second tier is their size. They're smaller, but they are doing amazing world-class things and they have a global orientation. And I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe I want to be part of that. Like, let's try this smaller company, globally brilliant, globally oriented, 
trying to take New Zealand, you know, there's kind of like a New Zealand Inc. taking New Zealand to the world. And actually, it was my first brilliant manager from Telecom Spark that introduced me to Vend. And so it kind of went from there in terms of talking to Alex, who was the CEO at the time, around what Vend was trying to do and whether there was something that I could add or contribute to Vend and its journey. Anna started her journey with Vend in 2017. Comparing Venn to some of the other organisations Anna has worked for, one thing that stands out to her is this incredible team culture and lack of ego in management. When she first started, she teamed up with Alex Villar, the CEO at Venn at the time, and brought her own skill set to strengthen the company, which paid off immensely in the long term. So I knew that I was coming in in this sort of loosely defined chief commercial officer role and that I would have sort of strategy and biz dev, a small team. And on my first, I think it was my second week at Vend, and I timed my start with this, Alex was going on a sort of round the world, visit all the offices trip. And I was like, that's what I should, that's what I should do. So my first sort of few weeks at Vend were visiting the London office, visiting the Melbourne office, visiting the Toronto office, and really trying to get a sense of what is what are the people like? What are, what's on people's mind? I spent a lot of time trying to understand what they thought was important, what they wanted from a role like mine. And I think I took a few things away. One was always travel with a pair of sneakers. I had not I had not anticipated how much traveling and how much walking in between airports and kind of carrying bags around. So I remember that after that first trip, I was like, I gotta wear sneakers all the time. The second thing I remember was how how eager everybody was to just get on and do the work. And through my interview process, I'd become pretty convinced that Vend was a non-political organization. But you always sort of think when you get inside, you'll find out that there's, you know, it's mostly true. It's 100% true. And I loved that because it meant you could just, you could just, figure out like what's the stuff we want to do people were open-minded I remember one of my first meetings someone saying to somebody else I reckon we could have done this better and I thought I wonder how this is going to go and people were like yes that's a great idea and so this feeling of like commitment to the mission and our customers and that being more important than your individual I don't know sort of achievement or ego really struck me so this idea of super committed, passionate people who would put the customer and the company first. Like you say, some things where I was like, I can't believe that this has been done with only two people and $50. Like, that's incredible. And then other times we were like, woo, that's pretty, that's pretty loose. Like, we, we should probably think about that now. But my early days really were, this is an awesome team. And there are people working super hard. And what I, what I took as a the thing that I wanted to sort of shape a little bit was we just needed to think a little bit more about how things were going to scale, right? So I would talk a lot to teams about the things we were doing. Is this still going to work when we have twice as many customers or when there's twice as many people at Vend? And I think that I could bring some of my McKinsey and my Microsoft experience to that, right? Which was I'd seen what it looks like huge, and it was like, are the things we're doing now, we don't want to get huge too fast. Like we don't need to have the processes and systems that those organizations have now, but we should have a view of are the things we're putting in place going to work as we as we grow. And the second thing I probably emphasized a bit more with the teams I was working with is let's think about this from a little bit of a longer time frame. So to do the things that you want to do or stop the things that you want to stop, what do we really have to believe about customers or competitors or the industry? And do we all believe that? So I think I, I just sort of felt like there was this huge energy and potential, people doing a ton of amazing things. And if I could just provide a little bit more sort of a few more guardrails or a little bit more kind of context and thinking about does this make sense long term? And does this make sense when we're double, triple, whatever? We could just start, I think, to make sure that the the impact was a little bit longer term and a little bit a little bit wider and wider and deeper. But versus the bigger companies I'd been in, I noticed a few things. One is how much more obsessed with the customer you are. 
like everyone says they're obsessed with the customer, but I think in smaller companies, like you're, you're just obsessed. The second thing I really took was how fast you can actually move with talented people and clear direction. Like it was just, there's just nothing to, to hold you back. And that was so energizing and exciting. And I think the third thing, which I talked about with, with a colleague at the time, is what it's like to be default dead rather than default alive. And when you're in bigger organizations, you, you're default alive, right? And so you make decisions based on, like, we're definitely going to have billions of dollars of revenue next year. Whereas when you're in a smaller company or a startup, you're like, we could be dead next year. And so what are we going to do to not be dead? And it's a very, it's a very clarifying, but also a very liberating framework because you're like, what's the right thing to do to have more, more in our case, more retailers or more investors on board or more people. And it's, that was a, that was a good kind of lesson around not taking for granted the position you already have. Whereas once you're much bigger or much more established, you know, you've got, you've got a bit more of a buffer there than when you're, than when you're starting out. Back to Vaughan, who remembers Anna's transition through the company fondly. In fact, he always had a feeling that she would one day come to lead the entire organisation. I mean, I've been working with Anna for years and it's, it's been a bit of a joke. And I, I make sure I, I bring it up as often as I can. When Anna first joined Bend, we had a a team day, a leadership day, and we had a panel where people could ask questions and we had to tell the truth. Like it was like completely all cards on the table. And the question was, what would happen if Alex was hit by a bus? You know, who would be a future leader at Vend? And I said in a heartbeat, I said it would be Anna, Anna would be the next CEO of Vend. And then just happened to play out that way that a few years later Anna was was stepping into that role. So no, Anna is a force of nature. She's been one of the most impressive people I've ever ever worked with and she had a <clears throat> relatively short stint at being CEO but it was one of these years that we'll all, all never forget which is you know the year of COVID and in that time she transformed the business completely. You know it wasn't a pivot but we found our direction of how we were going to respond to the biggest crisis you know in retail at the time and we came out the other side in a much better shape and she did it without even flinching so she's one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with and, and I'm looking forward to working with her in the future. So Anna took Vend by storm growing her role to take on other critical functions like finance and customer support and within three years she'd taken on the CEO role at Vend a natural evolution for a brilliant leader and then COVID hit. That first sort of six months in the in the seat was one of the most intense times of my professional life because you switch into the CEO role, it was in a global pandemic and it was in an economic meltdown that no one really knew the shape or or duration of. So it was kind of everything was everything was new and everything that we had thought to be true was kind of up in the up in the air as it was for many for many businesses. And so at that time, it really meant sort of two things for Vend, I think, in hindsight. One was we had to move super fast and be prepared to take risks that we wouldn't have taken before or challenge beliefs about our own operating model and really, really lean into the things that we thought to be true about Vend. And the second was we knew that we had to do the right thing by our customers who as independent retailers were going to be one of the hardest hit groups. And we knew that our success as a company, I mean, you know this always, but it was just so much more acute that if we didn't get our retailers through the pandemic and the meltdown, like we weren't going to get through it either. And so in some ways it was a super difficult time to become a CEO because it was, you know, moving from being a peer to, a leader amongst the executive team. It was shut down offices, this pandemic happening, you know, business continuity plans, and then this crazy economic situation. But in another aspect, it was an easier time to become the CEO because the agenda was so clear, right? And so everything that we uh, needed to do or wanted to challenge or wanted to discuss was just pushed right right to the right to the front and i think i think what we did really well was the way we operated as as an executive team and then with our 
people. We, we shared a lot of context. We had real alignment on the priorities and what we wanted to come out the other side um, of the pandemic as, and we knew that Vend would emerge stronger and, and bringing that people on the journey with us. And so I, I think, focused a lot on sort of that transparency and authenticity as a leader. I didn't always have good news for people. I didn't always have the answer. I didn't always know, you know, what was going to happen the next month, but our people could trust that we were telling them as it, you know, as it happened, what it, what it was and what it would mean for retailers and, and for, for colleagues. And that I think was a very, it was a really tough time, but I think it was a very formative time for Vend as well, because we proved to each other that a lot of the things that we thought before COVID were impossible actually were totally doable. And you just needed the, I guess, the, the freedom to go all bets are off. Let's really, let's really push that and challenge that and see what, see what happens. And I think what Venn demonstrated over the last year, I'm super proud of in terms of metrics and results and things we've done in the product that previously, I don't know, they would have taken us even as a, even as a sort of, you know, startup or smaller tech company, we'd set sort of boundaries in our own minds of what was possible. And we, blew through most of those, which was, I think, energizing and inspiring for people. It was also really hard, right? And we still have teams in lockdown and teams that haven't seen families for over a year. And so people did that under quite difficult personal circumstances as well. And I think there is something with that sort of shared experience that people, like, it just felt like we were tighter as a, as a team and as a, as a company. And I think, you know, we've, we've, come out the other side of that pandemic so much stronger than when we went in, right? And that includes part of the, I think, acquisition by by Lightspeed. And so I think it's been in some ways, you know, if I think to sitting in the, literally the seat a year ago and how scary and terrifying it was in moments to what we've done in the last year, it's, it's something uh, I'm super proud of and so glad we had the I had the opportunity to, to be a part of. One of the biggest challenges that Anna faced during her time as CEO leading Vend through the pandemic was getting clarity and alignment up front with her peers. But that never stopped her from trying to build up other leaders in her team, just like Vaughan. It's difficult and it's gritty and it's really having like tough conversations about does this matter more than that? What is the implications of this versus that? What will this really look like three layers down the organisation? And I think we've done a great job as a, as a team at Vend to go, we will go through the process as difficult as it is to get super clear as a team on this is what our priorities are and this is what great is going to look like and these are the parameters within which we can operate because then we can cascade that to our teams and really empower them to move with pace and energy and they've created outcomes that us as an exec team could never have thought about and that I could never have come up with by by myself and I think that's that's one of the sort of big lessons I've had and would take forward into other leadership roles is it's very easy to sit in a room and go yep we all agree on this and then you realize actually you haven't really done the work to test whether you agree and so it hits your teams and the teams are confused or they don't know how to align different priorities and so it slows everyone down as they either get friction or they have to bounce back up and so i would i would keep pushing as i go forward and other teams and i encourage other leaders like get that shared context and shared alignment up front because then things just move with with so much pace and and clarity in a in a very high leverage uh, model and and the other thing i've thought about as a as a leader, uh, and I anchor on that wonderful um, quote by Mayangelo, that you know people will forget what you said and they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I think a lot about the positive and negative experiences I've had with the people who've led me, and also the type of leader I want to be. And I think it's about I want to create an environment uh, where people can do the very best work of their lives and see their leader and whether that's me or you know someone that's closer to them from a leadership perspective as a enabler 
and a clarifier to to enable them to to do that. And so I think those are those are kind of two things I guess I've taken from that journey into the into the CEO role is that that getting that alignment and clarity so you can move with pace and that real sense of how do the people who work for you and therefore who work for them and it goes kind of all the way out how do they really feel when they come to work every day as with many successful companies often acquisition offers litter the doorstep and generally a ceo's job is to say no until it's really really good. And with Venn's growth, this is precisely what happened. They had multiple propositions to sell the business, but eventually they were approached by Lightspeed. So it's it's been a, a pretty thorough process over the last last wee while. I think the the thing that was interesting for us is, you know, our, our default position wasn't we're going to sell the company. Our default position was we're going to keep building the company. And so being approached and then you know, thinking about how we wanted to take that forward was was an interesting kind of discussion with with the board and, and our investors. But I think once you go into that process of right, we are going to go into a you know proper due diligence and and kind of commit to to doing that really well. The the advice I would have if there's other sort of founders or CEOs or people thinking about it is, it really is an all consuming process it's it's all you will be able to do and don't believe anybody who who tells you that it's going to be you know light touch and we'll try and keep most of the work away from the the management team I mean it's it's really all consuming Uh, and that's great but it does mean I think that for that process to be successful your core business needs to be working super well because it means that the core business can keep driving itself and delivering while the CEO and members of the executive team are sort of spending quite a lot of their time on, let's call it the strategic initiative, right? And so I think you want to make sure that your your business is in a position where if you're not in it every day, is it still going to keep delivering? And I think the work that we did through COVID that we talked about earlier meant that Venn was just on the upright. The machine was just working. It was record month after record month. The teams had confidence. They were moving with pace and clarity. And so although we probably slowed them down a little bit because there were some decisions we didn't want to take while we were in the middle of this process, they could kind of keep going. And we had the the capacity and the space to really to really run this process. We're running a business again. And I think that's, you know, that's the mode that the Venn team is in now is we've got to we've now got to go that's it's closed we've we've done the whole kind of transactional process part and now yes we're going to build a business we're going to build it with light speed but we need to get back into the mindset of that's what we're doing we're we're running a business and we're building a business and we're not waiting for permission or a question to come you know to come from the acquirer which is sort of how it's felt as you go through the the due diligence process. So I think that the, you know, if you're going into it, know that it's going to take up all of your time and know that there's going to come a point where you have to go from I'm running a business to I'm in a process and I kind of have to answer the questions as they come and, and, you know, do what I'm told. And then you need to flip back into, hey, part of the reason that we've been acquired is because we do some pretty great stuff and we've got some great people and we need to switch now back into that gear of doing the right thing for customers, for colleagues and, and creating value. So that's the phase we're in now. And I think it's it's a really exciting one because you're back in the seat of let's create value and you've got another another partner and another set of colleagues to, to do that with. Anna's final advice for you as a founder or as a CEO or as a leader is nothing to do with you as a person, actually. And it has everything to do with your team. Hire the very best team around you. And I think hire people that are better than you. You know, hire people that you would want to work for and don't be intimidated about bringing in brilliant people because a brilliant team with, you know, a whole lot of energy and passion and clear kind of a strategic direction can do amazing things. And so I would say... Get the best people you can for wherever you are in your journey and constantly kind of assess that you've got the very best best team around you because then those people will hire the best teams around them and you just get that 
that brilliant flywheel of, of just A players everywhere, which I think is really critical. As Vaughan explains, even if you leave the vendor organisation, your most favourite memories will be about the people. Actually, over the last last week or so, I've, I've had a lot of ex-vendors reach out to me sharing memories and you know that's nothing unusual that's that's kind of common every every now and then a, an old vendor would pop up and and you know share, share a life story of, of kind of what they've been up to since they've been at vend and i love that you know we're you know we always say you know once a vendor always a vendor and you know i always consider everybody to be part of a big vend family and there's literally you know probably over a thousand of us now who have all who have all done a tour of duty at vend and i just love that people consider themselves to always being part of the Venn team even even when they're no longer on the payroll yeah because like as you can probably tell pe- people are for me the most important part of, of of a venture without great people you don't really you don't really have anything at all and the people are the ones who make the memories so I mean I could tell you lots of crazy stories about you know stuff we used to do but really it comes down to the the, the memories of, of people who've been on the journey with you That's it for our conversation with Vaughan and Anna. It has been such a privilege to get to know the team over the years, and I know I speak on behalf of the SquarePeg team when I say that we feel truly privileged to have had Vend in the SquarePeg family. And we know that there are bigger and brighter days to come for this exceptional team now that they've joined forces with Lightspeed. This episode was first released via our weekly newsletter, All Signals, so I recommend you sign up at SPC. VC if you haven't already. Last week, SquarePeg's co-founder Paul Bassett distilled his lessons from COVID, a decade's worth of lessons in one year, as he put it. And it's a really good read if you want to understand the world a bit more and feel inspired to create change. While I'm talking about SquarePeg, it's worth me mentioning that we are currently hiring for a couple of incredible roles in our venture capital team and our newly created listed equities team, which will be investing in global listed technology companies. Both are dream roles if you're passionate about technology and if, at heart, you're hugely curious about the world of startups. And you can find details online on our blog. A big thanks to Anna and Vaughan for their time today and to our fabulous producer, Sarah, for her skill and expertise in stitching these stories together. We'll see you in two weeks.